Well, thank you, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 72 as we approach the, the Christmas season. Typically at Parkway, what we do around Christmas time is we break away from whatever series we're in to do Christmassy type sermons, but this year we don't have to because some of the Psalms that we're going to be looking at are already a little bit Christmassy. So while you're turning to Psalm 72, I uh, want to mention something. I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. We had a good Thanksgiving. One of the things that we did is we went to my dad's house to eat. And my sister-in-law, who's a professional tennis player, said, hey guys, I know what we should do. Let's all go in the backyard and play badminton. And I thought, okay, well, I think we're all going to get destroyed because anything with a racket, you'll destroy us with. Because she's, again, a professional tennis player. So we go out into the backyard to play uh, badminton, not something awesome like throwing the pigskin like, uh, like we do here in America, but instead we go out and we play badminton. And I learned two things in playing badminton. The first is that there's no masculine way to play badminton. Okay? At some point, the little birdie will be in front of you and you'll do a move and I'll show it to you that looks like this. Like that. Like you're blessing someone with your wand and your magic or something. And so there's no masculine way to do it. The other thing that blew my mind, and this, it blew the mind of my brother as well, is on the rackets that we were using, they had a big red W spray painted into the middle of the racket for the sporting goods company Wilson, right? But we saw it in the sunshine and the shadow had no W, Okay. And now that makes total sense, right? Because science, the, the, the sun is only blocked by the material. It's not blocked by the paint color. But my brother and I were like, what type of sorcery is this? I mean, we could not figure it out. It blew our mind that there was a big W when you look at the racket, but in the shadow on the ground from the sunshine, no W. Now, here's why I tell you that. This psalm is going to be talking about those like King Solomon, those coming from the line of David. But what you're gonna see is that's really just the shadow. You understand the real racket is better than just the shadow. The real racket is 3D, the shadow is 2D. The real racket has different colors, whereas the shadow is just shadow colored, whatever that's called. And the real racket, most importantly, has this big red W right in the middle of the strings on the racket that you don't see for the shadow. This is a text that's gonna appear to be about someone that's just like Solomon or somebody, one of Solomon's descendants. But what we're gonna find out is that the real racket, if you will, is Jesus that the language that's used here of Solomon is too strong to just culminate in Solomon. And as we look at that racket, we see that there's a big red cross in the middle of it by the time we get to the end of this psalm. This is what is known as a kingship hymn, also called a coronation psalm. We've talked about how there are different types of psalms, whether they're lament psalms or imprecatory psalms. This is the kind of psalm that you would sing in ancient Israel or that you would read in ancient Israel when there was a new king who was ascending the throne when there was a, a, a new ceremony where a king was being established, he was donning the royal purple, he was taking his throne, this would be the kind of thing that they would sing. It is known as a coronation psalm. And so we will work through it together. We will see that Solomon is the shadow of the racket, if you will, Christ being the actual substance. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for today. We thank you that we have the opportunity to... Uh, uh, learn how to worship you through your word, that you've not just given us facts about you, you've given us an entire book in the Psalms of how we should worship you and how we should think of you rightly. We pray that as we read about maybe Solomon, maybe another descendant of David, that we know that this text ultimately culminates in the one to whom all nations bow and the one who rules over not just a strip of land in Palestine, but one who rules over the whole earth. Would you help us uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, let's get started. We've got a bunch of verses today. The title through verse one of Solomon, 
Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Let's start with the title there, Of Solomon. This was probably not written by Solomon himself. This is probably something about Solomon or about one of Solomon's descendants. The way that we know this is if you look at verse 20, it's actually gonna probably attribute this psalm to King David. It's gonna say the psalms that we just mentioned are the works of King David. So this is probably not written by Solomon. It's probably written about Solomon, maybe by David, or someone who would come in the line of Solomon. You have David, then Solomon, and then his kids, his kids, and eventually you have Christ. So that's probably what it means. It's of a Solomonic type. Solomon is this king that it's pointing to, but it's gonna point to a greater king. Who is Solomon? First of all, his name in Hebrew is not Solomon, it's Shlomo. Isn't that great? You can just see the other Jewish kids making fun of him in foot races and stuff, calling him Shlomo. It's related to the word peace, where we get the word like shalom. That's what Solomon is. He is the son of David and whom? Bathsheba, okay? Can God take something that you've done that's really awful and redeem it for his purposes? You bet he can. So his, uh, when your dad is King David and your mom is Bathsheba, you're probably this powerful hot guy. That's gonna be Solomon. And uh, the reason that he is gonna be important here is because a promise made in the Old Testament by God to King David. It occurs in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. It says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David is like, hey, hey God, I wanna make you a house. And God's like, I don't know how big you think I am, but I'm everywhere. I'll make a house for you, meaning a dynasty, like the royal house of Windsor. I'll make a house for you, David, that you will never fail to have a man on the throne. And will your sons end up being rebellious and I have to rebuke them? Yes, but I will not take away my covenantal promise. We see this establishing, this importance of this Davidic covenant. That's why Solomon is important. Solomon's not just important by himself. He's important because he's the son of David, the one to whom God promised this kingship, okay? The one to whom God promised this kingship. Let's look at verse one. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Here's the first thing I want you to see here, that justice must come from God, not just from us, not just from the king of Israel, not just the leader. It's something that God must grant. It's something that he must give them. This is why in the Old Testament, the king was commanded to make his own copy of scripture that he had to write and to study it every day of his life, that to truly know justice, you must know God, okay? Our culture right now is super big on justice, but it's pagan, secular, non-biblical social justice. It's not justice the way the Bible means it, which to have that, you must know what God has said. You must know his word to know justice. It must come from God. This is why you cannot have perfect justice without Christianity. Why is our culture so big on making sure that if somebody's accused of something, they get condemned? Well, because if you don't believe in an afterlife, you don't believe in resurrection, you have to try to get perfect justice now. Oh, and by the way, you don't have a standard of that perfect justice apart from the Bible, okay? So there's this first thing that the people would cry out when a king would be uh, crowned in Israel, which is, may God give him justice. May God give him justice. We see this in one of the most famous examples in the life of Solomon, which is the story of the two prostitutes. Do you know this story? You were probably told like I was as a kid that there were just two women, but the text says they're prostitutes. So you have these two women that are prostitutes and they live in the same home and they each have an infant baby, okay? 
And one night, the mom rolls over accidentally on her baby and smothers the baby, okay? So what happens though is that mom takes that baby, goes to the other sleeping mom, switches out the baby, does a little baby swap, and then lies back down. So that way when that second mom wakes up, she's like, there's a dead baby here, but this isn't my baby, that's my baby. And the women start fighting over whose baby really is it. Now, before this, you have to understand that God had told Solomon, Solomon, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for the sweetest, newest camel with 20 inch rims or whatever it would be. What Solomon asked for was wisdom, that he might be a good leader, that he might be a good ruler and God grants it to him. So these two prostitutes come before Solomon with the one live baby and they're both saying, this is my baby. This is my baby. So what does Solomon do? He says, bring me a sword. He says, here's what I'll do. You both claim that it's your baby. I'll cut the baby in half and I'll give you half and I'll give you half. That's fair, right? And one lady's like, absolutely, do it. Cut the baby in half. But the real mom says, no, 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 no. Go ahead and give the other woman the baby. And Solomon goes, that's the mother because the real mother would love the baby more than just this vengeance and this jealousy. And so you hear about Solomon's wisdom. This story occurs in 1 Kings 3, and here's how 1 Kings 3 ends. Listen to this language here. The wisdom of God was in him to do justice, the same language that's here. That notice that this justice, true justice, biblical justice, not fake definitions of justice in 2020 must come from God. It's related to wisdom, it's related to knowing God, it's related to knowing God's word. What's weird is everybody sees that there are problems in society, whether they're Christian or not, but for some reason, Christians think that the way that you solve the problems is the same way as the lost unbelieving world. That's not how we solve the problems. Now, what does it mean for a king to be a royal son? You see that at the end? And righteousness to the royal son. Sometimes you'll see this idea in the Old Testament where the king is called a son of God. And that doesn't mean like how Jesus is the son of God, like the actual eternal second person of the Trinity. The idea is that to rebel against God's king is to rebel against God. God has put, in the king, has put the king of Israel on his throne and to rebel against that king is actually to rebel against the one who put him there, which is God. That's why Psalm 2 will say, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, right? And so, uh, so when it's talking about a royal son, it's just talking about this one that God has promised, this one of the seed of David, but we know with Christ it's a bit stronger. One of the songs that we sing here at Parkway at Christmas time, O Come Emmanuel, says this, O Come Thou Rod of Jesse Free. Who is Jesse? He's the dad of David. It's a reference to the promise that from this stump of Jesse will come forth this Messiah. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, with us God, literally is what it means, shall come to thee, O Israel. So that's how this psalm is gonna start there with verse one. Let's move to verses two through five. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. Here is the point of verses two through five. They're all saying basically the same thing. May the reign of this king who's gonna be like Solomon but come from the line of Solomon may everything flourish under his reign. Let me just summarize these verses for you. When you have a good king, when you have a good leader, things go well. When you have a bad king and a bad leader, things go poorly. This is why people get fired up with politics. If a king has good policies, things go well. If a king has bad policies, everyone suffers. But that's the idea here. And it's saying, may this king rule justly. 
may his reign go well. Let me give you an example. When we worship on Sunday morning through music, Tim Hollis leads us, and he is a good worship leader. He has training in musical theory. He has training in singing. He has training in theology. And so when he leads, not only does he do a good job, but we're all able to join in on the singing. Now instead, imagine for one Sunday that I decided to lead worship, okay? I would get up here and not know how to turn anything on. I also wouldn't know how to play an instrument. So I'd just pluck one string over and over, kind of make a little beep, 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 make a little beat or something. And when I sing, it is horrible. We Lees are not a singing people, okay? We Lees are, it sounds like I'm getting kidnapped by Al-Qaeda. It's really bad. I've literally been singing before in church and have people do this. They go, and they turn around and look at me. And I'm like, point over to my wife or somebody, point to somebody else. It's not me. I know you're to make a joyful noise to the Lord, but I guarantee you when I sing, the angels are like, no, and they do that, right? So it would be terrible, okay? I couldn't keep a beat. The singing would be awful. Now, not only would it be bad for me, it would be bad for all of you. You wouldn't be able to keep up. You would be distracted. You see, based on the qualities of the leader determines how things go for everyone else. This is why it's so important that you see what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 and then eventually in Genesis 3 where mankind decides to rule instead of letting God rule. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have God's kingdom, which simply means that God is ruling over stuff and because God is good, everything works under his rule, right? The humans are not all dying. They're not all fighting each other. Everything is great. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. There's not the guilt. There's not the shame. Everything works perfectly. But what happens? Mankind decides, instead of submitting to the reign of God, that we want to be like God. We want to put ourselves on the throne, and as soon as that happens, everything else becomes awful. That's what happens in the book of Genesis. All of a sudden, everything under man's rule gets broken, becomes broken. The ground bears thorns and thistles. A woman gets pain in childbearing. And all of a sudden, as you watch that story in Genesis, everything is the opposite of the way God set it up. Humans were meant to get along with one another, and right after that, Cain kills Abel. A husband was supposed to delight in his wife. The two shall become one flesh is a command in Hebrew. Like thou shalt not murder. And what happens right after the fall? A guy named Lamech takes a second wife and you get sexual perversion. Everything becomes broken. And just a few chapters later, God has to kill everyone except Noah and his family and start over. That's what happens when mankind puts ourselves on the throne. When you have a bad leader, things go poorly. Like look around. And when you have a good leader, God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, things go well. And so there's this hope that this king will rule well, that this king will rule well. Verses two and four, we'll kind of come back to verse three. I want you to see a few things in verses two and four. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. I want to talk about what poor and oppressor means just because it's 2020. And if you've, not the heard, if you've not heard the term oppressor this year, you have been living under a rock. So what I wanna do is I wanna distinguish a biblical definition of poor, a biblical definition of an oppressor versus the way that those terms are used in our culture. So let me make fun of something for a second that needs to be made fun of. But first, let me give you a definition of poor in our culture. I think we're actually gonna throw it up on the screen. Here's how our culture uses the term poor. One of two ways. One, a privileged Americans who have less money than other Americans, but still more money than most people in the world. Okay, that's how we use the term poor. Remember, if you're in America, you're the 1%. Only here do homeless people have iPhones and jackets. Okay, so I'm not saying there aren't real poor people. There are, but usually the way this term is used in our culture, it simply means I'm an American and I'm better than the rest of the world, but I don't have as much money as these other people. That's one way the term is used. 
The other way it's used in our culture is those who are poor due to sinful decisions or laziness. You see, our culture doesn't separate out whether or not someone's poor because of righteous reasons or they're poor because of unrighteous reasons. Let me say it stronger. You should not help all poor people. Sometimes you are enabling them. You should help the righteous poor. So what does the poor mean biblically? Here's a biblical definition. In the Bible, those who work hard but suffer due to circumstances beyond their control. Oftentimes when the Bible talks about the poor, it's also those that love and follow God. Somebody who becomes poor because they have a drug addiction is very different than somebody who gets cancer and can't pay their medical bills and therefore becomes poor. There's not just poor generically, there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor. Here's another term that our culture uses that is different than in the Bible. It's the term oppressor. You've probably heard that this year. Let me give you what our culture means by the term and what it means in the Bible. In our culture, an oppressor is one of two things. Anyone who has any talents, education, power, or wealth, even when they receive them through hard work and righteous means, that's an oppressor. You just being you is an oppressor. And then number two, anyone who doesn't jump to conclusions on the newest social issue. So whereas our culture would say, silence is violence. As soon as you see something online, give your opinion about it. The Bible's gonna say, don't ever do that. It's gonna say that uh, you should be slow to speak. It's gonna say that one way seems right until another brings his case before you, that you're not to do that. That's the way our culture defines an oppressor. Here's what an oppressor is in the Bible. Those who harm other people by, and notice this word, actively sinning against them. Not just by having stuff, but by actively sinning against them, that's what this means. So what this text is saying is with the reign of the Messiah, the one coming after the line of Solomon, he will help the actual poor and he will crush the actual oppressor. Now let's go back to verse three that we skipped real quick. Just a, few, just a quick comment here. It says, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. I just want you to see one thing here. That word translated as prosperity in Hebrew is the word shalom. Hence the name Solomon. Solomon, Shlomo, Shalom, those are all the same. In Arabic, Salam, they all mean peace. The idea is that there's this, not just peace, but wholeness, the way things should be. Shalom is what you have in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall of man. Shalom is also what you have at the end of Revelation when there's no more weeping or crying or pain. Shalom is where you're sitting at the beach and you've got that drink that's made out of a coconut and the weather's perfect and it's not COVID season and the waves are there and you think, ah, this is it. That's Shalom. There's the hope that this king will bring in shalom, that this king will bring in uh, peace, wholeness, the way things should be, and get us back to perfection. And then in verse five, where it says, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. That doesn't mean that we will always have the sun, S-U-N or something like that. It's just a poetic way of saying, may you reign forever. This is one of the reasons this psalm can't just be about Solomon. Do you know why? Because Solomon's super dead and he's been dead for a long time. He was dead and he stayed dead. So the psalm can't just be about Solomon because he doesn't reign forever and ever. He ends up dying. Verses six through eight. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. For some of you guys that care too much about your lawn, that's your life verse. Put that up in your garage. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's start here with verse six. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. This is simply the idea here. Under the reign of this coming king, under the reign of this Messiah, what we celebrate at Christmas, may everything go well. Ancient kings took a lot of pride in being able to control nature. 
They like to be able to say, I don't just rule over humans, I can also rule over nature. This is why they often have fantastic gardens, like the hanging gardens of Babylon. What they're trying to say is, I'm such a strong king that I can even rule nature. I can make this tree look like a bird. I can plant flowers that don't typically grow in my city in my city. Like Nebuchadnezzar would do, bring big channels of water through the city to show his control over nature. Kings would often import animals from far across the world to show how much authority they had over nature. If you think, for example, of uh, the general Hannibal in Carthage and attacking Rome, he marches elephants through the mountains in Italy to attack Rome to show, I control elephants, okay? You see this power, but here's what's interesting. With ancient kings, there's a limit to that. They can't control floods. They can't control when there's tornadoes. They can't control whether or not there's gonna be famine. This is why it's interesting when you see Jesus in the gospels not just do miracles, but do miracles over nature. Whether he's raising the dead or cursing a fig tree or most importantly, calming the wind and the waves of the storm. Who is this that the wind and the waves listen to him? That's something only God can do. You're meant to see that he's sovereign and everything flourishes even in the realm of nature. Even in the realm of nature. Verses seven through eight. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more, meaning forever. May he have dominion from sea to shining sea, from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Now here's why this is interesting here. Solomon expanded the territory uh, of the kingdom that David had, okay? So the kingdom got bigger under Solomon. But at the end of the day, Solomon did not rule over the whole world. He did not rule from sea to sea. You know how big Israel is? It's half the size of the state of Maine to put it in perspective for you. This is why this text can't just be about Solomon. It's talking about universal rule over all nations, over all peoples from sea to sea. It's saying over the whole world, it has to be bigger than simply Solomon. This is what is known as the kingdom of God. We talk about this a lot at Parkway. What is the kingdom of God? It's this. It's the fact that when God rules, everything goes well, period. It's God's rule, God's reign over God's people and God's place. That is the kingdom. And so there's this idea here of a return to kingdom, that, that Israel wouldn't just be the only nation that worshiped God, but rather the gospel would go to all nations. You understand that with Israel, right? The Old Testament is not primarily about Israel. This is why the text doesn't start in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham. It doesn't start with God in relation with Jews. It starts with God in relation with Adam and Eve. God is about the whole world, and then he uses the Jews temporarily to send a Messiah into the world, and then he is back to being about the whole world as the gospel goes to all nations. That is the hope here. In the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, how does that prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, the first thing he says you remember is this, you first realize who you're talking to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are God, you are hallowed, you are holy, I am not, but because of Christ, I get to call you Father. That's the first thing that you realize in prayer. What's the next thing you pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Before you get into your request for forgiveness, before you get into asking God for your daily bread, before you get into anything else, you recognize who God is and you recognize God's mission. Thy kingdom come. And what does that mean? It means this, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's reign is not contested. In heaven, his commands are followed immediately with perfect hearts and obedience. What we're praying in that is God make earth like heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth down here like it's already being done up there. Would you bring us this peace, this hope, and the shalom that we are hoping for? 
Verses seven through eight are really saying the same thing that we've already said, that when God reigns, everything goes well because he's a good ruler, and when you have a bad ruler, things don't go well. If I were a dictator, I'll pause right there for effect. Whenever I become dictator of America, and you say, Zach, I'd vote for you, I don't need your vote, I'm a dictator. Under my rule, things will go better than they are because I have some ideas. Would you like me to share them with you? First, no more school zones for older kids. Okay? Younger kids, elementary school, you can keep the school zones, but my first day in office as a dictator, we'll get rid of all school zones for high school age kids. If you can't not get hit by a car in high school, we just gotta get those genes out of the gene pool. Okay? We just gotta thin the herd a little bit. Additionally, when you try to unsubscribe from an email, it will just immediately unsubscribe you. It will not do the thing where it takes you to a page to log into an account you've never made, so you can request your password, log in, change your settings to unsubscribe. That would merit the death penalty when I'm in charge, okay? Ice cream cones would have little wings on the side to keep it from dripping on your hand. This is a solvable problem. You don't even need me to be dictator. Go do that. Somebody, bring me on Shark Tank or whatever when you do it. When someone parks over the line in a busy parking lot, straight to jail. (laughs) Straight to jail if it's busy and their car's halfway over and you're like, okay, this person is a real, let's just call them a selfish person. Straight to jail. There would be a slide at the top of every staircase. Not only would it be fun, it would keep people from falling down the stairs. Your smoke detector, when it was low, instead of beeping at two in the morning and waking you up, and then you take the battery out and through demonic power, it continues to beep somehow. (laughs) Instead, it would just have a little light, not enough to wake you up, a little LED that would flash and you would replace it when you got to it. Because your chance of dying in a fire, very low. Your chance of throwing a smoke detector through the wall, very high. And then lastly, men playing badminton would be illegal. Okay, because when you have a good ruler, things will go well, and when you have a bad ruler, things will go poorly. This text is saying that may, may Solomon be this kind of leader, but it doesn't just stop with Solomon. His kids and his kids and his kids and his kids, and eventually there'll be one who rules perfectly, who rules perfectly, where there's no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. True justice is done. True doctrine is taught. Heresy is stomped out. That is the hope of this text. Verses nine through 11. May desert tribes, I think we all know that means Tuscan Raiders. May desert tribes bow down to him. That just means those who are not in Israel. Those that are the nations surrounding Israel. These people that are not really a people. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of, in Hebrew it's Sheba and Seba, but I'm gonna say Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Let's look at verses nine through 10 first. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Here's what you're supposed to see here. All nations will come to serve the, the Jewish Messiah. All nations will come to serve the king of Israel. It's not just gonna be Israel. It's not just gonna be a strip of land in Palestine. It's gonna be these people who are not part of Israel are going to come and worship. Or have you never read Zechariah 8, 22 through 23? Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every nation's of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Emmanuel, we have heard that God is with you. Now, what are these places that are mentioned here? We see this place, Tarshish, which is a fun word to say, Tarshish, and we see Sheba and Seba and some of these kind of things. Let me tell you why this is important. Tarshish 
Most scholars think that's today in modern day Spain. It's as far west as a Jew could have imagined, okay? If you were a Jew back in the day, the farthest place, the way that's farthest away from you, the place that's furthest away is Tarshish. In fact, in the book of Jonah, when Jonah is told to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, where does he flee to? Tarshish is far away from God's command as he can get to the absolute edge of the earth, okay? That's Tarshish. This other place mentioned here, Seba, Seba is in modern day Ethiopia, about as far east as a Jew would think. So what he's saying is people as far west as I can consider to as far east as I consider will come and worship the Jewish Messiah. But there's another location mentioned here and it is in the south, okay? It is the south that is called Sheba. This is why it's interesting if this text is linked to Solomon. 1 Kings 10, one through five. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions, kind of like you guys do when we do theological equipping class. We bring up someone like Jeff, who's great, and you bring your questions and try to stump him like the queen of Sheba. Verse two, she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless. You're meant to see the pagans, the non-Jews, bringing their treasure before the Messiah. Now, let me tell you where this has an interesting inroad into Christmas. You know the story of the Magi, what are sometimes called the wise men? Few things about this. First of all, <clears throat> they, uh, they're not there the night that Jesus is born. Yes, I said it, every nativity scene gets it wrong. If I come over to your house at Christmas time and the Magi are there, I will pick them up and I will move them across the room because they are traveling and you will never invite me back to your house, okay? They're traveling. How come they're not there the night that Jesus is born? Well, because they can't teleport. They can't travel hundreds to thousands of miles to see, this is why it takes them a long time to get there. Why Herod wants to kill all the kids under two years old. It takes a while. They visit him as a child, not the night that he is there. They're traveling, okay? Additionally, they're not what we think of as wise men. The text never says there's three of them. We know that it's plural because it's the Greek word magoi, it's in the plural, but we don't know how many there are. They're not what we think of as wise men. You know what they are? They're witch doctors, They're probably Zoroastrian, Persian. They're into witchcraft. They do astrology. They do magic. They are as pagan as it can get. They worship demons. I can't make this any stronger. They're not just like scholars. They're witch doctors who practice magic and astrology, which is why they're looking at the stars to begin with, okay? And here's what you're meant to see. Let me tell you why that's so, 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 so important. Who is it that gets who Jesus is right It's not the religious elite. It's not the church people. It's not the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It is the pagan, demon-worshiping, witchcraft-practicing astrologers from the East. Those are the ones who correctly recognize who Jesus is and they bow down before him. That's what you're supposed to see with the Queen of Sheba. She recognizes there's something special about God's anointed king. And the Magi see there's something special about God's anointed king. That God is not just the God of the Jews, he's the God of everyone and the people that get it right are not the religious elite, but the pagans. That's what you're meant to see. And what do they bring him? The same thing the Queen of Sheba brings Solomon. Gold, because he's a king. They also bring frankincense because he's God and myrrh because he will die and they used to wrap people in myrrh after their death. That's what a lot of early church fathers pointed out with those gifts that are being brought at uh, the time of Christ. Fun little story, by the way. 
we have a little nativity set. And uh, I walked in the other day and my son had a camel and he had one of the magi. And he was singing the song from Aladdin, make way for Prince Ali. And I thought, I feel like these stories are getting mixed. I feel like they're a little disconnect here. I don't know if they worship the God of Israel in Agrabah, but uh, I digress. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. A few things I want you to see there. If you've got your Bible, underline the word kings. Notice that he doesn't merely rule over other people. He doesn't merely subjugate other people. He is the king of kings. He rules over kings. That word serve in Hebrew is abad. It often means to worship. It's not just serving like you would serve or help somebody. It's serving like the way you serve a God. That's the idea that is this, they will come, they will bow down before him. They will give him veneration. They will give him reverence. Revelation 19, 13 through 16 has the same imagery of Jesus says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Notice that, by the way. It's not as though God's just so violent in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament that goes away. It's the same God. Nobody's more violent than Jesus who kills all his enemies and sends them to hell forever. Get rid of the overly nice Jesus in your mind. He's kind, but he's not always nice. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Listen to this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is not a king lowercase k. He is the king capital K. He is the king to which all other kings will bow. And by the way, just as a weird note, when it says that the name king of kings is on his thigh, that is not because he has a tattoo. I've heard people say that for some reason. I'm pro tattoos, just not because of this text. He's not riding his horse wearing tiny shorts or little hot pants, okay? The idea is on his robe or sash that would have gone over someone's leg when they ride a horse, it says king of kings. So I'm not against tattoos, just don't uh, do that weird kind of Mark Driscoll interpretation right there. Okay, verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious in their blood, uh, is their blood in his sight. Here's what you need to know in these verses. The Messiah favors those the world despises. The Messiah chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The Messiah takes the weak, the poor, and the needy, and that's who he loves. Now, you might not understand how drastic of an idea this would have been. You understand that for most of world history and most other religions, especially in Greco-Roman religion, the gods don't love those that are awful. The gods don't love the poor. They don't love the weak. They don't love the needy. They love the strong. They love swift-footed Achilles or Hector, breaker of horses. They love guys who are handsome and powerful and smart. This is something that the Bible turns on its head. The kind of people that God chooses are the kind of people that the world would never choose. Okay? that the world would never choose. This is the thing, if I can be honest with you, that I most hate about Christianity. I am an elitist. I want the best and the brightest. That's not who God chooses. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Aren't you glad? Let me say it stronger because I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Christianity is a religion for losers. Christianity is a religion for losers. And if you say, I'm not a loser, in God's eyes you are and so am I. You should take heart that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise because compared to God, you and I are fools. You're meant to see that God doesn't choose the best and the brightest because God wants all the glory. 
He takes broken people and he gets all the glory because he doesn't choose the best and the brightest. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. We'll talk more about this when we get into 1 Corinthians. Aren't you glad though? Aren't you glad that God didn't choose the best? Just look around. Just look around. Be glad for God's mercy. Verses 17, 15 through 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, amber waves of grain. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. This is a lot of text, but it's really just saying the same thing. Verses 15 through 17, I'm sorry, through 16 are really saying the same thing that we've already talked about. May the reign of God's king of Israel, may everything flourish. May there be food, may people be given justice, may there not be any oppression, may everything go well. But I want you to see something at the second half of verse 17. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. Look at this next part. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Notice that language of all nations being blessed in this Messiah. The point that you're supposed to see here is not only does Jesus follow the line of David, not only is he of the line of Solomon, you can read this in his genealogy, but he's also of the line of Abraham. That God's promise to Abraham was Genesis 12, three. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Look at this same kind of language here. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Mankind screws everything up and the world becomes broken and God begins his rescue plan. And he goes to Abraham and he says, through your seed, the Hebrew word is zerah, the Greek word is sperma. Through your descendants, there's going to be a Messiah. This is actually why the Jews did circumcision because every time a Jewish man would be intimate with his Jewish wife, there was this hope that through this organ, eventually a descendant would come who would be a blessing to all nations. And you see that same kind of language used here in this Psalm. Verses 18 through 20, almost done. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, okay? Now, this is one of the reasons why it might not be written by Solomon, but here's something that you need to know. Verses 18 through 20 are not actually part of this psalm. Verses 18 through 20 are not part of this psalm. This psalm stops in verse 17, okay? Verses 18 through 20 are still inspired. It's still God's word, but you should think of it like you think of the title, It's still in the Hebrew text, it's still God's word, but it's not originally part of this psalm because the book of Psalms didn't just fall down from heaven. What happened, the book of Psalms, let's let's just do a recap of the Psalms. The book of Psalms, in Hebrew it's called Tehillim, songs, or in Greek, psalmoi, which is where we get the word psalms. Those words just mean songs. These are the songs for the people of God. There's 150 psalms and they're all compiled together. At some point in Israel's history, an editor or a group of editors had to take the songs that people are already singing and make a greatest hits album, okay? They had to take the songs everyone's already sang and say, these will be the songs for the people of God. And as those editors do that, they divide the Psalms into five different books. Verses 18 through 20 is the end of the second book. Let me show you what I mean by five different books. Book one is one through 41. Book two is 42 through 72. Notice that's where we're at today. Book three, 73 through 89. Book four, 90 through 106. Book 5, 107 through 150. Why did the editor 
take the Psalms and compile them into five little books inside the Psalms. Here's what most scholars think. Because God's law, the Mosaic law, was five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, penta, meaning five. So what the, what the editors are doing of the Psalms is probably saying, in the same way that God's law is five books, God's worship should be five books, and so they divide it out. So 18 through 20 is God's word. It's in Hebrew, it's inspired, you should hear that. All it's saying is, blessed be God, here's the end of these Psalms from David. But you need to understand it's not originally part of Psalm 72. Now, here's where I want to end. We're getting up on Christmas season. We just read a song about uh, you know, Solomon and his descendants. Here is why I'm pushing the idea that Jesus is the racket and Solomon is just the shadow, okay? Solomon didn't rule over the whole earth. He ruled over a strip of land in Palestine that's less than the size of the state of Maine. This text says that this Messiah will rule over everyone. Solomon did not have all kings of the world submit to him. There was a lot of peace under his reign and he had favor with people like the Queen of Sheba, but you don't have all nations bowing before, the God, bowing before the God of Israel because of the Israelite king. You also don't have him living forever. This text says that this Messiah will reign forever. There will be no end to his reign. As long as the sun, as long as the moon, it will just, throughout all generations, it will just keep going. Solomon died. Solomon died. Additionally, Solomon didn't have perfect justice. I don't know if you know anything about Solomon, but he was an absolutely terrible person and he tripped at the finish line. He did not finish the story well. He was an absolute sexual pervert based on all the women that he took. He also ends his life forsaking God and worshiping idols. That's how the story ends with him. He dies as a pagan idol worshiper. So this text can't just be about him. It must be about one who's greater. It must be about one who's coming after Solomon. It must be about one who will rule over all people, rule over all the earth, who himself will rule in righteousness where he will be sinless, he will be perfect, and he will usher in a golden age of God's people. Luke eleven thirty one, the queen of the south, that's the Sheba, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for sending the son, the one of Solomon, the one of David, the one of Abraham. We thank you that uh, mankind cannot rescue ourselves so that you sent a rescuer who, are, who is himself God. We love you and we thank you for this. We pray that as we approach the Christmas season, like Tim said, we wouldn't have just this fake sense of happy as if that's somehow pious to be fake, but instead we would realize that the celebration is that you choose ruined sinners. You crush the oppressor, you lift up the poor, you lift up the brokenhearted because that's us. We thank you that you've come to save people who, spiritually speaking, are losers, who, ethically speaking, are losers. We need grace. We are sinners. We thank you that Christmas is a reminder that we do not reach up to you, that you reach down to us. King Jesus, we thank you that though you're the eternal God, while remaining God, you also became truly human. As God, we need that because only God can save. But we also need a representative who's perfectly and truly human because it's humans that need saving. We bless your name, amen.